Good to have you here this morning. Let's take our Bibles, or if you have something to open up a Bible in. We're in Galatians chapter 3 as we continue to move chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the letter to the Galatians. We are in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, a message called Bewitched. No, this is not based upon the TV show or the movie. But it is a word that Paul uses in the New Testament expressing concern over the Galatian believers. We're going to read the entire passage together, just five verses. Uh, When you locate it, if you're physically able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 3, verse 1, bewitched. Paul writes, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, Galatians 3, 1, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, verse 5, does he who provides you with the Spirit And works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your living word. Uh, This is obviously not an easy passage. As we go through it, there's a challenge that the Galatians had been put under a spell by false teachers. They had been coerced, brainwashed into thinking that Somehow they had to perform to be in right standing with God or even to finish the race. And we've been singing this morning about the fact that we must surrender. The way we fight our battles is not by trying harder. It's by yielding more. It's by dying to self and allowing Christ to live in us and through us. We battle this, Lord. We battle self. We battle the flesh. And it's not always about the sins that we struggle with in terms of worldly attractions, but it's also our pride in thinking that we can handle the Christian life in our flesh. Forgive us for the times that we do that and the times that we may even portray that to others. That is not what the Christian life is about. But we would all, I think, collectively confess that we struggle with this idea of yielding. What does it really mean? What does it look like? We can be easily enticed by bullet lists and 10 things that we need to do to accomplish something. So help us, Lord, in this endeavor to yield more to your spirit. Uh, As your word goes forth, may you be pleased with how we respond. May you be glorified. May you encourage each of us that we have a helper. We have the Holy Spirit as our advocate. And the one who began that good work in, in us will finish it as we yield to you, Lord, so help us with that. We lay this time at your feet and pray all of that in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. I heard a story about preaching to the bears. A priest, a Pentecostal preacher, and a rabbi all served as chaplains to the students of Northern Michigan University in Marquette. They would get together two or three times a week for coffee and talk shop, and one day someone made the comment that preaching to people isn't really all that hard. A real challenge would be to preach to a bear. One thing led to another, and they decided to do an experiment. They would all go out into the woods, find a bear, preach to it, and attempt to convert it. 
Seven days later, they all got back together to discuss their experiences. Father Flannery, who has his arm in a sling, is on crutches and has various bandages throughout his body, goes first, and he says, well, he says, I went into the woods and I, I found me a bear, and when I found him, I began to read to him from the catechism. Well, that bear wanted nothing to do with me and began to slap me around. So I quickly grabbed some holy water, sprinkled him, and Holy Mary, Mother of God, he became as gentle as a lamb. The bishop is coming out next week to give him his first communion and confirmation. Well, next went Reverend, Reverend Billy Bob. He spoke next. He was in a wheelchair with an arm, uh, with an arm and both legs in casts and IV drip. In his best fire and brimstone oratory, he claimed, Well, brothers, you know, we don't sprinkle. I went out and found me a bear. I did. Then I began to read to my bear from God's holy word. But that bear wanted nothing to do with me, so I took hold of him, and we began to wrestle. We wrestled down one hill and up another, down another until we came to a creek. So I quick dunked him and baptized his hairy soul. And just like you said, he became as gentle as a lamb. We spent the rest of the day praising Jesus together. Well, they both looked down at the rabbi. He went last. He was lying in a hospital bed. His body was in a full cast and traction with IVs and monitors running in and out of him. He was in terrible shape. The rabbi looked up and said, looking back on it, circumcision may not have been the best way to approach <laughs> the bear. Now that story does have some relevance for this sermon. And it's this. There was a group of false teachers in the Galatian church that were trying to say that circumcision saves you. And in Judaism, or in the thought of the Abrahamic covenant, the Judaizing teachers that we've kind of known them as were not saying that circumcision will help you continue your walk. Circumcision was seen as entrance into the covenant. So their conclusion was basically, if you had not been circumcised and you had not been a convert into Judaism and keeping the laws of Moses, you were not saved. So you could see why they were concerned. They thought, you've got to do this to be saved. And Paul was saying, no, that is not how you get saved. You get saved by hearing the message of the gospel and responding to that message in faith. So for those of you who are taking notes, we're going to start with an exclamation followed by several rhetorical questions. That's the outline for the message. And we're going to be looking at a section that follows one of the most important or crucial sections in the letter. We've been pointing out a couple of key verses that we cannot forget. Let's just backtrack for a moment. In verse 16, it says, Nevertheless, 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified, whenever you see that word, it should be rendered declared innocent or righteous before God by the works of the law. There's some debate about what the works of the law represent as you read different commentaries, but most would say it has to do with the keeping of Torah, but namely or specifically the push for circumcision and keeping the dietary laws uh, given through Moses. It doesn't come through works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified or declared righteous or innocent by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now skipping down to 310 for a moment, take a look. It says, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So for those of you who have been doing some in-depth study and maybe you've been looking at this idea of the works of the law, how do you define that? I would say that's a pretty sweeping statement in 310 that it would seem that it would encompass this idea of trying to keep the 613 commandments and sub-commandments that are in the Old Testament or in the Torah. And so we have this section in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Shane did a great job on that uh, last Sunday. And now we're moving into what we would call a theological defense of the gospel. It begins with an argument that the reception of the Holy Spirit is the decisive evidence of justification or being declared right in God's sight by faith. It is not circumcision. It is not conversion into Judaism, as it were. And it is not any other law or requirement that someone would press upon you. You get saved by the hearing of the gospel and by hearing with faith and you are born again of the Holy Spirit prior to any action that you could do. Whether it be going into a baptismal, whether in this case it be some outward work of the flesh. Paul's point is the simple gospel is proclaimed, heard, when responded to in faith, there is something supernatural that takes place at that moment. And it's a holy moment. And all of us who could reflect at this moment on that moment in time when we gave our hearts to the Lord, and some, for some of you it was very early in life, so it's maybe hard for you to pinpoint it. For others of you, it was a very emotional moment Maybe you walked forward at a crusade. Maybe you finally yielded your life at a church service. Maybe it was with a friend. Maybe you were in your own bedroom and got on your knees and prayed. Some people got saved in their car listening to Christian radio. There's a whole host of ways that God saves people. We're even hearing stories of people having dreams and visions in the Middle East about Jesus and surrendering their life to Him. With all of that and that simplicity, yet the profoundness of conversion, Paul says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians. This is the exclamation, if you're taking notes. Who has bewitched you? Oh, you foolish Galatians. The New England Bible says, you stupid Galatians. So you could tell how politically correct Paul was in his writing, right? He, he's calling them foolish for allowing themselves to be bewitched or to be misled or you could even say brainwashed. The Greek word therefore foolish is a word that doesn't mean you're unintelligent. It means that you're being unwise. It doesn't speak of intellectual deficiency, but of allowing oneself to be duped when you know better. It's being foolish when you know better. And how many of us as believers could say so many times in our lives, we've done dumb things when we knew better. In fact, it's really hard to take sometimes because when you're ignorant of something, it's like, okay, I didn't realize that. 
I've learned my lesson. But when you know better, it's so hard. And sometimes we've said that to kids and grandkids. You knew better. You know better. And that's often what happens to us. Now, there's some precedent for an exclamation like this. I'm going to show you in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Let's go there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses addressing the people of Israel. This is toward the tail end of the wilderness wanderings. He says these words. And as you turn there, let me share just a couple of uh, passages. This is Jeremiah 5. Just write it down for your notes, 21. Jeremiah says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and departed. Take a look at what Moses said in chapter 32, verse 1. Deuteronomy 32, 1. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim, proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They, the people, have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are perverse and a crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord? Here it is, O foolish and unwise people. You could say it this way. Is this how you repay God? Foolish and unwise people. Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. If you go back to Galatians 3, I wanted you to see the power in those verses because it's spoken to a group of people who experience the power of God, the presence of God, the delivering hand of God, the provision of God in the wilderness through manna, through miracles of water gushing from rocks, clothes that didn't wear out, the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day. They had the direct blessing and presence of God some of us, you know, we, we have ideas that we wish we could have experienced things like that. And yet, Moses says to them at the tail end of his own ministry, you're foolish. The foolishness is, it, it, it goes deeper into the heart when we have experienced so much and yet we allow ourselves to be duped so easily. Jesus said to the two on the road to Emmaus, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Luke 24, 25, and 26. Paul's argument and his questions can be easily answered by the Galatians themselves if they're simply thinking things through. He says in chapter 1, I'm amazed that you're so quickly departing from him who called you to a different gospel, which is really not another. There's a, uh, 
uh, film out right now called The American Gospel. Some of you may have seen it. And it depicts some of these tragedies in the American church where people are being duped into thinking that the gospel is about prosperity. The gospel is about fame. It's about fortune. It's about popularity. It's about this or that. And so many people have bought into it and they sit in churches every week thinking this is the gospel. And Paul says, no, you've been bewitched. Intoxicated by fancy clothes, oratory skills, the excitement. But often what's missing is the substance. Amen? There's a lot of show and a lot of flash out there, but very little Bible. What we need is Galatians 2.20. We need to realize that I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. It's not about me. It's not about my life and my achievements. It's about Christ living through a yielded vessel. And this is where I will confess on behalf of all of us, we all struggle with it, right? Yielding, submission is hard. The power for salvation and holiness comes from the Lord, not from me. The Bible says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil. Who has bewitched you? Galatians 3.1. So the exclamation, foolish Galatians, the first rhetorical question, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Who has brainwashed you? One writer says the word in Greek here suggests that Paul regards his Galatian converts as having unwittingly come under the spell or the hypnotic effect of the false teachers. Paul's goal is to undo the spell, to break the spell. Have you ever been talking to someone and the lights are on but nobody's home? (laughs) You're trying to show them and they seem like they're under this hypnotic effect and you're like, wake up! Snap out of it! Right? But we can get duped in this way. We can get uh, enamored by that which is false because it appeals to parts of us, right? Bewitched means to charm or fascinate in a misleading way by flattery or false promises or occultic power. And it clearly suggests that this is the use of feeling over fact, emotion over clear understanding of truth. And Paul says, wake up! Magic, says one writer, attracted people in the ancient world. It promised control over their lives in an uncertain world. Paul is not endorsing it. He is employing a popular usage of the day to indicate the dangerous path the Galatians are on. These men have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Avoid men such as these, Paul says. This is not politically correct stuff, but here it is. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 was mesmerizing the people. You could get this idea of bewitched with this text, Acts 8, 9 through 11. There was a certain man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic in the city and he astonished King James. He bewitched the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great. And all the people from the smallest to the greatest were giving attention to him saying, this man is called the great power of God. Acts 8, 9 and 10. 
And we can be impressed by the show. We can be impressed by someone who allegedly has power. In fact, the Bible says the Antichrist will be able to do demonic, false signs and wonders. And Jesus even says in Matthew 24, if it were possible, it would, these things would mislead even the elect. And he says, he says, behold, I've told you in advance. And so we need to know the gospel so that we are not bewitched, so that we are not taken into systems that put us back in bondage by performance. Because if we do that, Galatians 3.10 says we end up under a curse. It's as if someone put a spell or uttered a spell over the Galatians, says Paul, because they no longer see the significance of the cross of Christ. We need to return regularly to the cross of Christ. There's a verse on the wall, and you might want to turn around and look at it because it's for anyone who's in this pulpit. And it says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. When Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the resurrection lose their centrality in the message, then the messenger has gone amiss. How many times have you gone back and heard an old Billy Graham message and over and over again, what's Billy appeal to? The cross of Jesus Christ. Because that's where the power is. And if we get enraptured with a system that becomes more about our bullet points and our ability to do this or that, and we lose the significance of the saving power of the gospel... We're beginning to go amiss. And I'll tell you this, I, when I listen to someone, I listen closely to hear how much I hear Jesus and how much I hear talk about the cross. Because if I hear more about my performance and how I'm supposed to do life, I want to hear some of those things, no doubt. But it's got to come from the foundation of the power of God. Jesus was publicly portrayed End of verse 1, before the Galatians' very eyes. Now, does this mean that they saw Jesus crucified? Probably unlikely. Maybe a few had. But they saw or they felt or could see the gospel or the cross in the preaching of the word of God. Publicly portrayed is a Greek word called prographo. It translates a word that's used of posting important official notices on a placard in the marketplace or other public locations for citizens to read. Jesus Christ, when he was proclaimed by Paul to the Galatian churches, it's almost as if people could see the crucifixion. Today, we don't have to do that because many of us have seen Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, or we saw some, maybe we saw the visual Bible, or we saw, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we've seen some depictions of crucifixion, we don't know if all the details are accurate, but we know if you've seen the Passion of the Christ movie, it's hard to even look at the whipping and the crucifixion scene. And when Paul came into town, one writer says it's as if Paul got out a projector and played the Jesus film for the Galatians. Now, he wouldn't have done that. That technology was not there. But he didn't need it, and we don't either, because the power is in the message preached. We don't necessarily need the visuals to get the picture. The visuals already in the description of what happened. 
that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. Do you remember when you first saw the cross? Do you know what I'm talking about? When you saw it? Do you remember that? I'll tell you what, when I first saw what the cross meant in my spirit, when I realized that Jesus was dying in my place there, when I realized the theological implications that he was taking the wrath of God on my behalf, that he was enduring uh, punishment as though he had committed my sin and the collective sins of humanity. I mean, just think about the sins in this room. <sighs> Hard to take. But then walk that out. That's what Jesus is enduring on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I would imagine that Paul was a passionate proclaimer of that message. And the Galatians, when they gathered and they heard it, and they heard a man articulate the cross, they could see God's saving power on display. Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed before you as dying on the cross. But look at 221. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then what happens? Christ died what? Needlessly. If you can save yourself some other way, then why the cross? Pray tell. You have to ask that question. If you're just someone who is considering the claims of Jesus this morning as you listen to my voice, you've not made up your mind yet, if you think that good works can save you or your good works will outweigh your bad works, can I ask you, why do you think God allowed his son to die on that in that terrible way? See, the cross speaks volumes. And the cross is where God's love and God's justice intersect at the person of Jesus. The cross is God's love on display, but it's also the seriousness of sin is on display. It is showing us that God loves us so much that Christ died for us, but sin is so serious that Christ had to die for us. The cross speaks volumes. And it's as though Jesus were publicly uh, portrayed as dying on the cross in the preaching of the gospel. If only the Galatians would have fixed their eyes on the placard and understood it, it would have enabled them to escape the fascination of the false teachers. For Jesus was publicly portrayed, but some were trying to remove the picture and the implications. Do you get the picture? They're saying, well, the cross is important, but this is what you've got to do now. And there are people who are at the Tyler Galleria, part of cult groups. They're at other locations, and this is their opening pitch, and they have bewitched many People who have sat in evangelical churches for years and said something like this. Oh, no, that, that doesn't. The cross of Christ doesn't completely save you. Now you got to do this. And what they do is they get their hook in the jaw of people who should know better. But for some reason, whatever's going on in that person's life, they get convinced that, well, maybe they're not saved. Maybe the cross is not enough. Maybe it's not by grace. The mother of a nine-year-old boy, boy named Mark received a phone call in the middle of the afternoon. It was the teacher from her son's school, Mrs. Smith. Something unusual happened today in your son's third grade class. Your son did something that surprised me. 
so much that I thought you should know about it immediately. When you get a phone call like that as a mom or dad, it's like, uh-oh, what did he do? <laughs> Never seen anything like this in all my years of teaching. This morning I was teaching a lesson on creative writing, and as I always do, I tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant works hard all summer, stores up plenty of food, but the grasshopper plays all summer, does no work. The winter comes, the grasshopper begins to starve because he has no food. So he begs, please, Mr. Ant, you have much food, please let me eat too. Then I said, boys and girls, your job is to write the end of the story. Your son, Mark, raised his hand and said, teacher, may I draw a picture? Well, yes, Mark, if you like, you may draw a picture, but you first have to write the ending of the story. She said, in all the years past, most of the students said, the ant shared his food through the winter, and both the ant and the grasshopper lived. A few children wrote, no, Mr. Grasshopper, you should have worked in the summer. Now, you, uh, and you would have enough food. I have just enough for myself, so the ant lives and the grasshopper dies. But your son ended the story in a way different way from every other child ever. He wrote, so the ant gave all his food to the grasshopper. The grasshopper lived through the winter, but the ant died. And the picture that your son drew, three crosses at the bottom of the page. See, the son understood the gospel. The gospel is someone who gives it all to us, though we don't deserve it. He gives his life as a public display of God's incredible love for us. I cannot save myself. And so many of us walk around trying with our best efforts. On August 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people. One survived, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. News accounts say when rescuers found Cecilia, they did not believe she had been on the plane. Investigators first assumed Cecilia had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway onto which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger register for the flight was checked, there was little Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula Chicon, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and body around Cecilia, and then would not let her go. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. Neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth, neither life nor death. This writer says, such is the love of our Savior for us. He left heaven, lowered himself to us, covered us with the sacrifice of his own body to save us. The horror of sin and death cannot destroy us because he sacrificed himself for us and wouldn't let us go. And so Paul says, second rhetorical question, this is the only thing I want to find out from you, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? You can write 2.16 and 3.10 there. Or by the hearing of faith? Answer me one question. This sounds like Pastor John. He's famous for this. We, we have meetings and he'll say, I just have one question. 
But then he doesn't always have just one question. He's like a preacher who says, just five more minutes. And I know how you guys take that most of the time. When you received Jesus Christ into your life, when you received the Holy Spirit, you were born again at the moment of salvation, did it come through the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Answer the question for yourself. You don't have to say it out loud, but you know what happened, right? You heard the gospel. Some of you walked into a church as a walking disaster. (laughs) I was one of those. I walked into a church An utter disaster. I was living far, far away from the precepts of Almighty God. Doing everything I wanted to do for me, myself, and I. And I walked into a church, heard the gospel, and when I got saved and the Holy Spirit came into my life, it was simply this. Oh God, thank you for Jesus Christ. If you can save somebody like me, please, And I walked down an aisle, not that you have to walk down an aisle to get saved, and I was born again to a living hope. On the spot. I didn't do 30 push-ups in the aisle. I wasn't given a list and said, do these 15 things and then come back and see us. No, 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 no. Salvation is a gift from God. And the evidence of that gift is the receiving of the Holy Spirit because every believer becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. I have one question. How did you receive the Spirit of God in the first place? Did you do a bunch of works or did you fall on your knees or on your face? Did you walk to the front of a church or the front of a crusade and cry for mercy? I think we know the answer. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. God's Spirit moves through the preaching of the word, and when someone hears the word in faith, They're born again to a living hope. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you mean I got to enter into my mama's womb and be born a second time? No. I'm talking about spiritual things, Nick. (laughs) You must be born from above. This is literally what the language means. You must have a supernatural transformation. I am not talking about trying harder. I'm not talking about a self-help program. I'm not talking about do these 10 things and you'll be a better person who will run faster, jump higher, and achieve all your goals. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about a rah-rah session where you walk into a building and someone tells you you're good enough, you're smart enough, and people like you. We're talking about a Savior who died in our place so that we could be spiritually transformed. Amen? Amen. From death to life, from the power of Satan to God. We're not talking about a few things that I add to my portfolio as an American. We're talking about a spiritual transformation from heaven to earth, from God to man. 
This is what salvation is. That's why if you've experienced it, you don't have to guess about it. Am I saved? No, no, no. You know. Now we have our moments, right? We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil and all of that. And so Paul asks another question. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? <laughs> Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now think back for a second. You have this conversion experience. The Spirit of the living God comes and lives in you. It's no longer I who live. And now you're going to finish the race by your own self-effort. Now, some of us have got the first part down. We know we were born again of the Holy Spirit, and there was a radical moment when we were regenerated by the Spirit, but now we got it. So now we've gotten away from our Bible, we've gotten away from dependence on the Lord, and we're trying to be better. Good luck. See, if you try in the power of your flesh, you're going to have days that you succeed and days that you fail, because our flesh it be fickle. Amen? I start diets regularly, like <laughs> weekly. <laughs> I had a brother tell me, tomorrow's always the best time for a, to start a diet. That helps me justify my chocolate cake. And my... Have you ever noticed, just when I, I make declarations, all right, this is it, tomorrow, right? Or have, have some of you already done this? I'm fasting until Thanksgiving. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not eating another thing until that turkey goes on the table Thursday afternoon. And then about an hour later, someone in the office has a birthday. And you're like, I can't do them wrong by not having a piece of cake? Right? Did you begin by the Spirit and now you're trying to perfect yourself through the flesh? What's the goal of the Christian life? It's that the power of God would move through me in such a way that God would be glorified and other people would know his love. See, if you flip over to chapter 5, look at verse 6 to look ahead for a moment. For in Christ Jesus, 5, 6, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but what? Faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were doing good. What happened? You see, it's the spirit that enables us. The Kari language of equatorial Africa provides to be difficult for translators of the New Testament, especially when they come to the word paraclete, the word for the Holy Spirit, how could they describe the Holy Spirit? One day the translators came across a group of porters going off into the bush carrying bundles on their heads. They noticed that in the line of porters there was always one who didn't carry anything. They assumed that he was the boss, there to make sure that everybody did their work. However, they discovered he wasn't the boss, he had a special job. He was there if anyone fell over with exhaustion. He would come and pick up the man's load and carry it for him. The porter was known in the Kari language as the one who falls down beside us. The translators had their word for paraclete. 
the one who helps me, the one who helps carry my load. You know, there's so many issues in my life and the life of other believers simply because I try to carry my own load. I know the verse, cast all your care to him because he cares for you, but we have our little qualifiers. But he's busy. Does he really want to hear about this? He's running the universe after all. <laughs> right? No, the Bible simply says, cast all your care. Isaiah 26.3 says, you will keep him in shalom, shalom, perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God promises a double portion of peace for all of those who will simply just stay focused on the Lord. Oh, but we're distracted. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I don't know. Will it? Should I? Should my first default be to pray? Should my default be to give the Lord my worries and concerns? Can I really give him everything? Look at 6.12. 6.12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. 6.12. Simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Do you know that the flesh here could also be considered me trying to impress people with my spirituality? So, it's something like this. I want to make a good showing. So I do this and that to look spiritual. Like, I got this and I'm not really super, super dependent on Christ because I'm, I'm so far in my Christian maturity. And that usually means I look down on the other people that aren't as far as me. Oh, oh, you, you eat that. Oh, you watch that. Oh, you wear that. What's that that you have on? Right? And we become these police that are void of the Spirit. Do you know that Jesus had his harshest words for these people? They put religious burdens on people's backs, yet they were void of the love of God. Let's finish it. Galatians 3, 4, and 5 says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? May imply that they were persecuted for the cross, if indeed it was in vain. The word can also be rendered as an experience. Did you have all these great experiences in vain? If vain indeed they should be. If you have an NIV, fourth rhetorical question. Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing. The word can be taken as persecution. So if you were persecuted for the cross, are you forgetting about that? Or it could be taken as an experience. So have you had all these incredible experiences with God, the Holy Spirit, experiencing the love of Christ, the transforming power of Christ, moving from death to life, from light to darkness, from the power of Satan to God, only to go back to a works-oriented system? Did you forget what God did for you? Snap out of it, Paul would say. You're under a spell. Get rid of it. Look back to Jesus. As the old song puts it, someone put a spell on you, man. And the truth will break that. Come to your doctrinal senses. 
I put in my notes, because God is faithful, even when we allow ourselves to be negatively influenced, we can come back to that place of a solid understanding and a solid grace walk with the Lord. Paul is really calling this church to come back to its theological senses. That's why he wrote what he wrote. He's trying to get their attention so that the spell is broken. It's like he's slapping his hands or waving his hand in front of their face. And then finally he says, final question. Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Does God who gives you or gave you his Spirit work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Final rhetorical question sums up the argument. God worked among you or in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, deliverance. Think of some, how many things happen in a believer's life. Salvation, transformation, deliverance, good news, good deeds, impact on others. God provides the Spirit. The Greek word means he abundantly supplies the Spirit. He gives it grace upon grace so that we are overflowing by the power of the Spirit. These miracles are signs of God's presence. They're signs of wonderful change in our lives. So don't go back to trying to perform. Lean in more. Amen? See, I think, I think the more we go on with Christ, the more easy it is to kind of operate on cruise control. Anybody relate to that? You can kind of just put it in cruise control because I know the lingo and I know what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) It's like the kid in the Sunday school class. He's not paying attention, but he knows that if he says Jesus to the question, he's probably going to be close, right? (laughs) So the teacher says, when Moses came to the edge of the sea, what was the name of the sea? And the kid says, he's not paying attention. Jesus, 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 right? And Jesus is the answer, but we need to make sure that we're leaning into him every day. Starting our day saying, Lord, I give you everything. Would you clothe me with your power? Would you fill me with your spirit? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Benjamin West, the great painter, speaking of Gilbert Stewart, a brother artist famed for his beautiful coloring, used to say to his pupils, It's no use to steal Stuart's colors. If you want to paint as he does, you must steal his eyes. When we are baffled in our efforts to live as Christ lived, the record of his life, how wonderful it is, will not enable us to be like him. What we need is his heart. We need his nature. We need him living through us. We need the helper, the Holy Spirit. The Christian life cannot be lived in my own strength. Final story. In his book, Go the Distance, Ed Rowell emphasizes the importance of finishing well by telling the story of how Robbie Gordon uh, finished at the 83rd running of the Indianapolis 500. With just one lap to go, Robbie Gordon knew that he didn't have enough gas to finish. While the other lead drivers had taken a pit stop when the yellow caution flag went up, following a crash by Mark Dismore, 
Gordon gambled that he could finish the final 37 laps on one tank of fuel. With just a lap to go, he had to pull in for a splash of methanol. The stop caused him to finish in fourth place. In a guest column in Speednet, Gordon shared rule number one in racing, quote, you must first finish before you finish first. Gordon learned that lesson the hard way. The fuel gauge in his car had been warning him for some time, and he chose to postpone the solution. The stakes in our lives are much higher. As soon as the warning light goes off in one critical area of life, that is the time to make adjustments or course corrections. That's the time to pull into the gas station. Now, I know some of you like to live on the edge. You ever been riding with someone in their car and you're like, your gas light's been on for the last 10 miles. Oh, we're good. We're fine. I like to live on the edge, baby. Well, you may, but you got others in the car who would prefer that you fill the tank up now, actually 10 miles ago. They call them idiot lights for a reason. <laughs> and all God's people say it? So, when the lights flash in our lives, and I think they do every day, multiple times a day, that's the time I got to get refilled. That's the time I got to, and you might say, well, how do you do that? What is the spiritual refilling station? You're sitting in it. Every time you gather around the things of God, every time you worship the Lord, every time you open His Word, every time you pray, every time you turn on worship music, every time you meditate on God's Word, every time you voice a simple prayer, every time you try to live in one single verse, you're getting refilled. Amen? That's why the enemy wants to keep you from this. That's why the enemy wants to keep us so busy and distracted we barely have time to shoot up a prayer in our day. That's why American culture is robbing people of even the day of the Lord anymore. That can't be a priority because we're too busy doing other stuff. And if you fill into the station once a week, you may survive, but I don't know how you're going to thrive. I need to be filled every single day, multiple times a day. Amen? Amen. This is the key to the life of the Spirit. Don't try to finish in your flesh, what began in the spirit. Father, thank you. Thank you for your living word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this wonderful community of saints. Thank you for Thanksgiving coming up. We, we have so much to be grateful for. And even if we're facing a tough season, I know that the joy of the Lord can be our strength. Father, forgive us for buying into some of the, the lies that seem so attractive in our culture. They can bewitch us, they can mesmerize us, but they can't really produce anything. In fact, nothing from my flesh can produce anything good. I need you. The power of your resurrection flowing in my life. Lord, would you help us just, just to pause during the week ahead of us, make sure that we're regularly getting refilled Help us not to try to live out what started by the power of the Spirit. Help us not try to live that out in the power of our flesh. Help us to lean into you every single day. Yield to you every single day. Thank you for your patience with us as we wrestle with these things, Lord. I pray that you would deliver anyone who's hearing my voice
who's fallen, fallen under the spell, been mesmerized, come back into bondage. I pray you break those chains and make them free. That they would know good deeds follow from the power of the gospel, from the grace of God. And Father, uh, I also just ask for those who are not sure that they're saved, maybe they've thought that being good enough is what saves you, and the truth is that the cross screams out that we fall short, but we have a God that loves us so amazingly. Jesus, thank you for entering into our pain, bearing our curse and punishment at the cross, experiencing what you did in the darkness and in the pain, defeating death for us, rising from the dead, and imparting us true life. If you've not met the Lord and Savior Jesus, today could be your day. You just have to cry out to him. There's nothing you can do to add to what he's done. You have to exercise faith. It'd be simply something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe in what you did for me. Prayed if it's you. I believe that you're God. I believe that you became a man. You lived the perfect life that I could never live. You died in my place at the cross. You took my punishment and my pain and shame there. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I place my full trust in you for my salvation and for my ongoing walk with you, my sanctification. If you're a prodigal and maybe you've gotten away from the Lord, the simple gospel, maybe you were duped by a system that made promises or all of that, God is so patient. He wants you just to come back. And that's what Paul's trying to do in this section is he's just saying, come back home, come back to the foot of the cross. And Father, for this congregation that's faithfully proclaiming the good news to this broken world, keep us faithful, help us to uh, rely upon you for divine appointments and opportunities to share this most blessed news of all, the good news of the gospel. We love you, and we ask that in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.